to finish up Mark chapter 10 this morning, uh, the good news of a better kingdom. We're going to be in verses 46 through 52, uh, as we see uh, an individual whom we have referenced already up until this point, blind Bartimaeus, um, in contrast with the healing of the other blind man in Mark's gospel. Um, and we, we, so we've already, uh, for those who have been here for some time, we've already looked and referenced Bartimaeus this morning. We are um, seeing uh, Christ heal blind Bartimaeus. We see Bartimaeus moved from darkness uh, to, to light. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. That's what we're going to be discussing this morning in our time together. Verses 46 through 52. Uh, I hope that you have a Bible. Uh, if you do, go ahead and open there or turn on to there. If you don't, we have some Bibles in the front that we would love, um, or the back, depending on your point of reference, right? Um, and we would love to give that to you. And so don't be shy about getting up and grabbing one of those. We love God's Word, and we desire that you would have a copy. And so, um, yeah. So, Mark 46, verses 10 through 52. Last week, um, and we're going to reference this later on. We uh, saw from Neil as he preached um, of Jesus foretelling his death a third time in the request of James and John, which again we're going to reference. We saw the major hinge point of uh, the Gospel of Mark being verse 45. And so um, we, we saw a, uh, a scene in which Jesus foretells of his death, his, his coming crucifixion, which is if you're, uh, you're kind of like using your, your Bible headings as a timeline, we are really close, right? Next week we will actually see um, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And so the cross is, uh, is imminent, right? It's before us. It is right there. Um, and so last week we were able to see from Mark's account Jesus uh, foretelling his death yet again. And then this dialogue between James and John and Jesus that runs in contrast to what we see um, from Bartimaeus this morning. So a lot of connection points from last week and your time together and this morning and our time together. So let's look together um, at verse 46 of Mark chapter 10, uh, and then we're going to make three observations from our passage this morning. So um, if you would follow along with me beginning in verse 46, this is the word of the Lord. And they, being Jesus and the disciples, and what we will uh, see is a large crowd following Jesus at this particular point, um, came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do 
for you. Again, a familiar question, if you were here last week or if you're at all familiar with the context of Mark 10, that we will reference um, in just a few um, in just a few moments. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your word and for your spirit who opens our eyes and our hearts to understand that which you have um, that's what you have said and that which you have preserved. We pray that um, as we approach this passage this morning that we might do so in humility, that you might open our eyes to our own sin and death, um, and that we, um, in response, might call out and pursue after Christ with a reliant faithfulness in response to his grace. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 10, our last part. Again, we've been here for a while now. This might be the most amount of time that we have spent in a chapter of Mark's gospel yet. Um, And so we're going to wrap it up this morning, and we do so with this incredible conversation, this dialogue between Jesus and a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Uh, We talked earlier in Mark's gospel, we saw Jesus healing another blind man. And in in that particular instance, we saw that from the blind man, there was no desire for healing, right? We talked about, as we looked there, about how his friends were actually the ones who were were bringing him, who were urging him along to, uh, to Jesus. And so here we do see a bit of a contrast this morning in that in Bartimaeus, we see this, this bold cry for help in light of um, both a a realization of where he was, which is not altogether different from where the other blind man found himself, right? Because he was aware that he was blind, obviously, right? Um, And in response to that, in light of that, he seemed to be so broken and so discouraged, so lacking hope that he couldn't even cry out to Jesus. We saw the faithfulness of Christ in that particular instance, to bring his faith along. You guys remember this? He, he uh, rubs his eyes and he opens them and he says, I see uh, men, but they look like trees, right? And so we talked about the progression. Jesus then rubbed his eyes a second time and he opened them and saw everything clearly. And we talked about, as we surveyed that first account, how uh, Jesus is so faithful, right, to produce within the blind man uh, a degree of faith, the same faith that we see present here in Bartimaeus that leads him to cry out and to reach out and grasp for, uh, for Jesus to be made well. We're going to talk about all that that means, but we do see this incredible contrast between the first blind man, the sense of like complete and utter brokenness, despair, but not a sense of despair that leads him to cry out for help, but just he had been beaten down, right? This is a guy who had been, who had been worn out by the world and, and possessed no hope. We see a bit of a contrast as we look at Bartimaeus this morning. And so let's begin by looking to the cry of the broken. This is our first observation from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. The cry of the broken. Look with me at verse 56. It says in verse 56 that they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, which we're going to touch on in just 
a moment, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48, and many rebuked him. Okay, so there's a response from the crowd, and they begin telling him to be silent. But Bartimaeus cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. At this point, as we've already acknowledged in Mark's gospel, uh, the cross is, is, is imminent. It is before us. It is before Christ. And here we find Jesus leading the way to Jerusalem for Passover and ultimately Calvary. We see Jesus in this large body of people, along with his disciples, passing through Jericho, the city of roses. Now, if at the cross, let's do some contextual work here. If at the cross we observe the tension of physical repulsion and love displayed through the crucifixion in Jericho, if we were walking with Jesus here in Mark chapter 10 at this time, we would be able to observe a truly beautiful landscape in this recently refurbished city. Jericho was was peppered with palm trees, and, and the mountains of Moab composed the backdrop. And so we get this picture as this crowd works their way out of Jericho, uh, somewhere between 18 and 20 miles at this point from Jerusalem. And they begin the ascent up into Jerusalem. They're, they're lower in proximity at this point than, uh, than they will find themselves in, in just a matter of time as they approach Jerusalem. And so as they begin working their way through the city, the, the landscape, the beauty of the city is observable. Right? They begin to work their way up and out of Jericho, and you can see the mountains of Moab in the distance. It's really beautiful. Jericho is a really, really beautiful place, a refurbished city by the Herodians. And in verse 46, we find on the backdrop of the beauty of this city, a resident of Jericho who had never been able to observe the beauty that it had to offer. And we meet a guy named Bartimaeus who is, who is blind, who is destitute, who is sidelined and marginalized. Due to his condition, Bartimaeus is reliant on the generosity of others in order to meet his most basic needs. Why? Well, because he was blind. Right? And so he is reliant on those within the community, within the city, to meet his needs. That's why we find him uh, begging right on the side of the road. It's a condition that Bartimaeus is well aware of, given his cry out for help. Now, if we, if we approach it from that position alone, right, we can understand the difficulty and the hardship that Bartimaeus undoubtedly encountered and experienced in his life. But as I read through this last part of Mark chapter 10 this past week, one thing that I could not escape was the loneliness that he must have felt being isolated as a result of the darkness that he lived in. 
Right? Imagine yourself in a room in which all the lights are turned out, right? And the windows are black, and it's totally dark. You can see nothing. You can't see the hand before uh, your, your, your face. Man, what a lonely place to be, right? Feeling as though in his existence he is already ostracized, he's already marginalized, he's already pushed to the edge of society. Only now, in Bartimaeus' case, because he is blind, man, he is living this daily, second by second, moment by moment. Bartimaeus is like an orphan. Okay, Bartimaeus is like a a child orphan, okay, totally reliant and needy, only he's found himself cast into the streets, dependent on the mob to care for him, and oh, by the way, he's doing all of this in the dark, given the fact that he is blind. It's a quite helpless picture. That we're able to that we're able to observe in the life of Bartimaeus. Now, in addition to all of this, we can imagine that this season, given the sense of loneliness and isolation that he feels, is especially difficult. Why? Well, because the city of Jericho is swollen with people at this point, right? And we see Bartimaeus remains ostracized, even though it is as if he is sitting in a crowded room surrounded with people. In the midst of this, the swell of Jericho as it is en route to Jerusalem. And we have these mass numbers of Jews who are making their way into the city for the observance of the Passover. The city swells. Only Bartimaeus, in light of the swelling of the city undoubtedly feels more isolated and ostracized than ever. He's surrounded with people and yet feels totally alone, unseen, unheard, and distant. Now, let's just make a a personal application point, right? That we can perhaps relate with what we see Bartimaeus experiencing and encountering here in Mark chapter 10. This passage is not primarily about you and I, but the effects of sin that Bartimaeus feels are not absent from our lives. And if we're really honest with ourselves and we do personal inventory, we would affirm that reality. We see in the life of Bartimaeus that he experiences daily division. As it relates to his ability to interact with the community around him. Now, in all of this, we're pointed to a greater spiritual truth, right? But we can learn a lot by observing the physical environment that Bartimaeus finds himself in, right? That the the physical ostracization that Bartimaeus feels, being alone, being isolated, being marginalized, being divided, being separated. This is where we find ourselves on a spiritual plane as a result of the sin that exists in us. Right? That we see this division that Bartimaeus encounters and we say, yes, indeed, we can relate. Division caused by sin. You and I and God. You and I and others. All of this Bartimaeus is familiar with. He Feels it. It's not new and it's not totally unique. 
Let's connect this back with a great affirming truth about the character, the person, and the work of God in history past that provides hope, even as we observe the cry of the broken Bartimaeus here in this last part of Mark chapter 10. In the first five chapters, in the first five chapters of the book of Exodus, we see God's interaction with his mediator between he and his people, Moses. And he instructs Moses to go and to tell his people who are at this point enslaved in Egypt. And he instructs him, God instructs Moses to go and to tell his people, listen, I see you. Okay, I I see you. I know what you are feeling. I hear you. And so we ask this question as we're confronted with the similar reality in the first five chapters of the book of Exodus and what we see here in Mark chapter 10. Why is this emphasized? Why is it emphasized from God to Moses as a message to his people that while you are enslaved, while you are under oppression and experiencing great difficulty, that I, God, hear you, that I see you, and that I know. That's one aspect that's emphasized by God as he communicates with Moses, that which he is to take back to his people. Why emphasize that? Well, because this feeling of of separation... And and loneliness is a very real struggle. And in Bartimaeus, it is magnified through his existence in a physical darkness. But in verse 46 through 48, we see Bartimaeus, self-aware and desperate for mercy, respond just as God desires that spiritually broken people would respond. What does he do? His brokenness is observable. His brokenness is palpable. We can taste it. We can see it. Well, he cries out to God. He cries out to God the same way that God hears the cries of his people in slavery to Pharaoh. We see here in Mark chapter 10 that God hears the cries of broken people in slavery to sin. We see here in Mark 10, in addition to what we see in Exodus chapter 5, because we know how it ends, right? If you're at all unfamiliar with the Exodus account, I'm going through the book of Exodus on Thursday morning with what has turned out to be a group of girls because all my boys have left me. And we see in the book of Exodus that God is faithful, that he rescues his people out of bondage and out of slavery, right? That he leads them out of the land, that he speaks promises before his people and assures them of hope that is to come. We see at the end of the book that God is there dwelling with his people, We see in the book of Exodus that God rescues his people from isolation, slavery, bondage, and oppression. We see here in Mark chapter 10 that Christ rescues us from our isolation, that Christ rescues us from our bondage, that he rescues us from oppression and sin. He pursues us. 
Let that sink in, right? Let that sink in for, for a moment that Christ pursues after us. He pursues us out of a heart of love, out of a heart of love and through his submission for us on the cross, we see that Christ not only closes the gap between you and I and God, but for those who repent and believe, who cry out in a similar form, in a similar fashion to that which we see from Bartimaeus here in Mark 10, that he eliminates the gap. It doesn't just close it to where it's like, okay, it's short enough now that we can jump across to the other side, but he grabs hold of us. Right, that he calls us and he grabs hold of us and he brings us into fellowship, into community with himself. This is what we see Peter emphasize in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. We see him on the way here. Peter is able to look back at what Christ has done in Jerusalem upon the cross. Here, we're looking forward to what he would do. The righteous Christ for the unrighteous, you and I, sinners broken, to bring you to God, Peter says. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, here's the amazing thing from what we see. We're still just in the cry of Bartimaeus here. And we're going to talk more about it in just a moment. But one thing that is noteworthy, that is beautiful and interesting in light of what we see here, is that on some level, Bartimaeus gets exactly what Peter is referencing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He gets it on some level, which is incredible. Why? Why is it so incredible? Well, because the disciples have not gotten it. Consider their question last week. Jesus is going to, and we're going to discuss this further, he's going to address them with a question. The same question that we see he he addresses uh, Bartimaeus here uh, just following with. If we consider their response, we're able to observe that the disciples, they're not getting it, but Bartimaeus on some level, he is grasping it. The crowds, they are not getting it. And yet Bartimaeus on some elementary level is understanding who Jesus is and what he is capable of and what he has come to accomplish. Right? The religious leaders, the rulers, they are not getting it. Government officials, They are not getting it. Left to ourselves, we do not get it. But by grace, Bartimaeus here begins to see. And while his physical eyes, as he cries out to Christ, while his physical eyes remain closed, his inner eyes, these spiritual eyes, are beginning to open, to confess his need. Bartimaeus' cry helps us to get that he gets what's going on here. And so let's look at that. Bartimaeus uses, in his cry out to Christ, the messianic title for the Christ, as he cries out to Jesus, verse 47, Son of David, have mercy on me. He refers to him in a most unique way, especially in light of what we see contained within Mark's gospel. Other gospel accounts use this language more often than Mark does, but Mark doesn't. And so as we 
approach the conclusion of Mark chapter 10, we come to this interesting cry in verse 47 from a blind beggar to Jesus, and he relates him to the son of David. He calls out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're about to do some, we're about to do some, some moving, okay? So hang with me here. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the Lord delivering a message to his prophet to share with David. And in this message, it has everything to do with his covenant, with God's covenant with David. And we're going to look right now at verses 10 through 16 to help us understand the cry of blind Bartimaeus to Jesus and this elementary understanding that he has of who he is. Are you still good? Are we all okay? All right, here we go. Looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. This is the Lord's covenant with David. Verse 10. And I will appoint, the Lord says, a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. Okay, that's really good stuff, right? Violent men will afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, here we go into verse 12. This informs our understanding of the cry of Bartimaeus in verse 47. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, okay, die. In layman's terms, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish, get this, the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this is what God is saying is to be done by the son of David. Now, there is this, this moving back and forth between Solomon and, and, and uh, Jesus that we kind of see going on in this, in, this, in this conversation. But Christ being the ultimate fulfillment of that which we see pointed towards in verse 13, this eternal throne, this kingdom ruled over by this king who would not be defeated by death, who would not lie down with the fathers, but would overcome hell and sin, right? So we're continuing on. Verse uh, 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. Now here's where we're, we're going back and forth between Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment, and Solomon, right? When he commits iniquity, because we know Christ didn't commit iniquity. He paid for our iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men. Christ taking the rod of men in our place with the stripes. I'm adding my own commentary as we go through here, okay? Um, so, hang, so hang with me. With the stripes of the son of men. Verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Now here we're talking about Christ, the occupier of this throne. Verse 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance 
with all this vision, Nathan, the prophet, spoke to David. And so what is amazing in light of what we see here? We see a man who is incapable of bringing himself to the city gates, right? Who has to be led along, who can't care for himself, but is reliant on the generosity of others. And yet, while dwelling, ostracized, and in darkness, there is a connection that's made in the mind of this blind beggar Bartimaeus between the occupier of this eternal throne spoken of and foreshadowed toward in 2 Samuel and Jesus. That's incredible. Bartimaeus is no, like, theologian, okay? Like, Bartimaeus didn't go to to seminary. He was not well-trained. He likely does not grasp the full implications of that which he is saying, but he has come to a certain conclusion about Jesus, and it is this, that he is the Christ, and that he, get this, is to be exalted. That Jesus is the Christ, and because this is true, that he is worthy of exaltation. And so let's take a step back and let's consider some application for just a moment. In our lives, Christ is to be exalted. Right? In our lives, Christ is to be exalted. The Father demands the exaltation of the Son. And so what does this look like? How do we diagnose a Christ-exalting existence? And we all check in and we go, yes, that's what I desire. How do we diagnose this in our lives? Um, I've got seven things, and this is not an, all, uh, an all-inclusive list here. There are certainly some that we could add. Um, to it, But here are seven markers that I think that we can say that these are attributes of a Christ-exalting uh, Christ life, a Christ-exalting existence. It begins with repentance and confession. Right? It begins with repentance and confession. This is exalting to Christ. Right? The fact that we... In, in, in observance and in commission, right, and in, in confession of who we are and what we need, cry out to Jesus, communicating to the world that he is the only one who is able to accomplish that which we need most, forgiveness of sins and newness of heart. And so we begin there, repentance and confession. If we are not camped out there, if you have never experienced this, if you've never offered this, then you're not living a Christ-exalting life. You can't, because you're not in community with God, right? And so it begins with this repentance, this confession, this crying out to Christ that elevates him, that exalts him. Moving on, submission. So you've got repentance and confession, and then you've got submission. Submission to his word and his will for the lives of his people. Repentance and confession, and then submission. Submission to Christ. He is our shepherd. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our our boss, right? We submit ourselves to to his will, to his desire, and to his word. Number three, markers of a Christ-exalting existence. Sacrifice, right? Sacrifice. Certainly a marker of one who is, is living in community with God, right? And is thus seeking to live a life that exalts him. The Christian life requires sacrifice, 
Like by nature, it requires that we abandon the things of this world, that we lay them aside, that they are put to death, and that we, right, in dying to ourselves, be made alive in Christ. Right? That's what's required. This is an attribute of a Christ-exalting life. Number four, combining a couple here, so you guys, I'm saving you some ink. You're welcome. Commitment to mission and Christian community. The, a marker, an attribute of a Christ-exalting life. We talked about it this morning. Haley and I were chatting before service today, and I said, man, we are all over this this morning. Like, this is, it's, it's, all, it's all over everything that we are Everything that we are seeing, a Christ-exalting life, is submitted to the mission of Jesus and Christian community. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Some Christians try to go to heaven alone, in solitude. But believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. And so why do we combine? Is it, why, do I, why do we combine mission and Christian community? Well, because those things exist together. They coexist, like Haley mentioned in the beginning. They, they cannot be separated from one another. I, I think I've told a few of you guys, I sat down with uh, a, a dear friend and brother, um, a few months ago, and he asked me, he's a church planner, and he said, what's the biggest struggle you guys are encountering that you're experiencing as a new church plant? And I told him, I said, man, we do Christian community and fellowship really well, but as far as mission and evangelism, like, I feel like we're struggling. And so I said, and so at this point, I'm trying to, like, make it sound better, right? Because, like, I'm in the same boat with you guys. And so I'm like, well, how do we dress this thing up, right? And so I'm like, well, you know, so it's not like we are, um, you know, we're really doing something, you know, that's, that's bad and neglecting these other things. But we're just neglecting, you know, we're pouring a lot of energy and effort into this good. And in doing so, we are finding ourselves to be neglectful of this other area, Christian mission. And he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you got to change the way you think about this. Right, that if Christian community is not informed by mission, engagement of the lost, reaching out, then you're not doing Christian community well. Okay, does that make sense? That if we just get together and we potluck really, really well, and we go, man, that is really stellar. We got some amazing things going on here. We all know one another's names, right? Birthdays, we're celebrating together, we're getting together during the week. Like, are those good things? Like, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing. But if we're not doing so in the context of Christian mission, then it's, 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 it's perverted, right? It's not true. It's not what it's intended to be. It's not what it ought to be. We don't see this anywhere in the New Testament, right? We see that they work in connection, in correlation with one another. And that's what Spurgeon is emphasizing here. I mean, we go together, committed to mission and Christian community. Number five, joy. Markers of, of a, of a Christ-exalting existence that we, as God's people, possess a joy in which the world is incapable of stealing, right? Does that mean that we don't struggle, that we don't encounter difficulty? And at times we go, man, I'm not smiling all the time. Where's your joy, bro, right? No, that's not, it's not what we are saying. What we're saying is that there is this connection between this joy that God's people are able to experience, come what may, and our partnership, 
with Christ. Right? His being our king. Continuing on, number six, generosity. Generosity, the marker of a Christ-exalting existence. And number seven, worship, which we're going to see at the tail end of this passage. Worship, not only in fellowship like this, although this gathering with God's people is certainly a marker of Christ-exalting existence. There's no context, again, in the New Testament for Christ-exalting existence outside of commitment to a local church, right, of being a part of the church. There's no context for it, but we're not talking solely about this. We're talking about a life of worship. We're talking about a life of worship. And so we ask, are these marks present in your life? Are they present in your, in your life? Are they present in my life? It's convicting. It's challenging. Let's look back at Mark 10. Verse 48, how would the crowd respond to the cry of Bartimaeus? Verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And so Bartimaeus acknowledges his condition. Right? He's grasping these, these fundamental and foundational truths about who Jesus is, the Christ, the Messiah, spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And yet as he cries out to Christ, we see those gathered around him saying, Stop shouting, right? Like, stop, stop shouting. You are, you're embarrassing us in front of Jesus, right? A less than helpful response from those that Bartimaeus relied on to meet his daily need. But how does Bartimaeus respond? It tells us a lot. He cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on on me, for all practical purposes, we see Bartimaeus losing it. Right? He is not deterred by the jeering of the crowd, but he remains totally fixated on the hope that Christ brings. Here's another way that we can say this. Um, cool is not a concern for Bartimaeus. He's not worried about being cool. Appearance before the crowd is of no concern to him. Perception is of no concern. It's all about Jesus. Right? It's all about Jesus and getting his attention and gaining his ear. Bartimaeus is more concerned about being made well than being cool. In verse 48, we see the persistence of Bartimaeus calling out to and desiring Christ. And so we come, we're, again, it looks like part seven in Mark chapter 10, y'all. We come to um, the response of Jesus. We see not only the cry of the broken Bartimaeus, but we see the call of the king. How will Jesus respond to the cries of the broken? Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. You see, whereas the crowd responds with scorn towards Bartimaeus in verse 48, Jesus responds in service. Right, that which was spoken of last week in verses 32 through 45. Verse 45, 
being a climactic moment in the Gospel of Mark in which, in which Jesus states that his objective is to what? Well, to, to serve sinners and to give his life as a ransom for many, to make sinners righteous before the Lord through his substitutionary sacrifice upon the cross. Right? Christ hears the cry of the self-aware, acknowledging his need for mercy. He stops and he serves him. And so how does Bartimaeus respond in verse 50 to this call? Hey, take heart, like Jesus has heard you, right? He's now calling you, verse 50. He throws off his cloak and he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, this is incredible. Consider what we saw last week. Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And so how do we connect what we see here from Bartimaeus and what we saw last week in the question posed from Jesus, the same question to his disciples, the request that stands in stark contrast? Right? The disciples are asked the same question prior to their entrance into Jericho, and their response is, make us great. Here, Bartimaeus is asked the exact same question, and his response is, make me well. And then Jesus says to him in verse 52, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And so I want, us to, I want us to lock in on that statement for just a moment. I want us to understand what type of faith Jesus is talking about here and what has proven to be the catalyst right, for this transformation. Bartimaeus being made well, being made to see. You see, Jesus is not saying in verse 52 that Bartimaeus had earned anything. This is not what your faith has made you well implies. And so Jesus is now saying, okay, like really awesome response to my entrance into the kingdom. Like you have done it. You have met the bar. Now, like here we, here we go. No, that's not what he's saying. Grace is the divine hand that extends healing. This is a work of grace. Bartimaeus being made well is a gift of grace. Faith is the human hand, as it has been so eloquently said, that reaches out and receives it. And so it is grace and it is faith. And these two things work together. And Jesus does exactly what Bartimaeus is crying out for. Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus, crying out to Jesus with an empty hand, but not with a blind faith. Instead, speaking of his understanding of who Christ is, Bartimaeus displays a faith directed towards Jesus, the only one that could heal, the only one that could save and again, Jesus does just, just that. Something interesting about the type of healing that we see taking place in Mark chapter 10. You guys ready for this? This is really, this is really good. Hang with me for just a few more 
in just a few more minutes. The word that is used for heal, as in Bartimaeus' eyes are healed, and the word used for saved are actually the same word. It can mean healed physically or it can mean saved spiritually. In this case of Mark 10 and the life of Bartimaeus, he is made well in both instances. And his response to the healing of Christ to his eyes affirms this reality. We get a glimpse here of what Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, when he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Because we see a mourning from Bartimaeus as it relates as it relates um, to his condition. We see here the gospel showing us that Jesus is committed to our transformation. We go from residing in darkness to resting in him. Jesus, the light of the world, enters into the darkness. And he enters into brokenness and corruption and shame and embarrassment. We see his commitment to the will of God and the glory of God as Jesus redeems our lives. Spiritually, the kindness of God is visible in Christ Jesus. His love and compassion is made observable. Sinners are made to mourn their condition, at which point Christ extends the comfort that he alone is able to Provide And in and through this, Jesus changes the way that we understand and relate with one another. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We see in verse 48 the undesirable response to Bartimaeus. Quiet! You're embarrassing us in front of Jesus. We see that replaced and drowned out by the call of verse 49, again, from those present, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Verse 48 is replaced with verse 49. And so the question is, is this our response? Is this our message? Is our message to the world, in the world, that Jesus is calling you? That Jesus is is calling you to those in whom we, we work with, to those that we live with, to our neighbors, the marginalized, the well connected, and the disconnected. There is no partiality. Right? There is no partiality when it comes to those who need sight and those whom Christ gives it to. And so, into the darkness, God's people are to preach the light of the gospel. Into the darkness, we preach the light of the gospel. We preach Christ. And we see, lastly, hang with me here, we're going to go just a few minutes over, but if we get together for one point next week, we'll be done in like 15 minutes. And that would be just not doable. So, let's look at this last point, a cause for celebration. We see at the conclusion of this story that Bartimaeus immediately received his sight and followed him. He immediately received his sight and he followed him on his way, on the way. Now, who is him here? Him is Jesus. Okay, and so we see Jesus heals Bartimaeus. And then Bartimaeus begins following after Jesus. John Bloom, who is the co-founder 
of Desiring God Ministries actually wrote a really incredible excerpt from this encounter in Mark 10 between Jesus and blind Bartimaeus in which he discusses and kind of unpacks that which is taking place. It's almost like a poem, right? But it's, it's not. Well, I took an excerpt from it that I wanted to share with you. When Bartimaeus looked back at the son of David, he saw his back. Okay, and so we get this picture of Bartimaeus. His, his eyesight has been restored. This miracle has been worked, right? And he looks, he recovers his sight, and he's just gazing around. He's observing all the beauty of this city, right, that we talked about in the beginning. Only in this case, the beauty of the city takes a back seat to the beauty that he observes in Christ as Jesus now continues on his way to Jerusalem. He sees his back. Jesus is already headed towards Jerusalem. He's already headed towards the cross. And his words, go your way, are still ringing in Bartimaeus' ears. He says this, it took no time for him to decide that Jesus was now his way. That Jesus is now Bartimaeus' way. In the book of Acts, we actually see Christians referred to as like people of the way, right? And so Bartimaeus here in this beautiful city um, now uh, observes that which is around him and the beauty of Christ. And church tradition holds that Bartimaeus actually stood and followed Jesus. That Bartimaeus stood and he, he followed Jesus all the way to the cross, which is not difficult for us to imagine because you and I are called to the same thing, right? Church tradition holds that Bartimaeus witnessed to the crucifixion and that he celebrated the resurrection and became a major figure in the church at Jerusalem. And so what do we see? What do we observe as we conclude our time here in Mark 10? We made it. Christ opens blind eyes. Christ opens blind eyes. He, he shows us our need. And then he calls us into salvation that he purchases through his blood at the cross. And so, how do we respond? Having been confronted with our need, having been confronted with our rebellion, we talk about the covenant of God spoken to David through his prophet being fulfilled and observable here in Mark chapter 10. We are a covenant-breaking people. And Christ is the great covenant keeper. God is committed to the covenant that was spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We see it here in Mark 10, and we're going to see it over the next couple of weeks as the cross looms ever more closely. And so how do we respond? The only acceptable response to observing the exalted Christ is to follow him. That's the only acceptable response. And so let us hear this morning again, afresh, anew, the call of Christ for the Christian life. To, to follow him, right? To, to lay aside the things of this world, to leave the beauty of this world, the beauty of Jericho, and to pursue Christ to the cross. This mirrors the Christian life. This displays for us what it looks like to pass from death to life, a surrendering of the things of this world and a pursuit after Christ. Let us respond in humility to that which God does, to that which God works as he rescues us from sin and hell and death and invites us out of loneliness 
and into intimacy with God. Let us respond with humility and let us respond with worship. This is what God has done and this is what God is doing and we are grateful for that.